good to continue the tradition of singing great classic and famous hymns that have lasted throughout the centuries. And, um, and I think without question, the most famous hymn written by the Anglican Bishop Reginald Heber is Holy, 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 a song we sang earlier. And there's a more obscure work by Heber called The Son of God Goes Forth to War. And it's a call to follow Jesus into a world that hates and opposes us. One verse recounts the efforts of the earliest Christians who lived and died for God. Quote, a glorious band, a chosen few, on whom the Spirit came. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bow their necks to death to feel who follows in their train. How is it that these mostly ordinary men and women became glorious and valiant? What's it going to take for us to follow in their footsteps today? Fall in as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. How can we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? The answer is that we must revisit and reaffirm the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. Just to review, the four Gospels together report five reported, uh, five appearances of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. Mark clearly indicates that Christ appeared first to Mary Magdalene. A little later, the other women also met Jesus. As for the men, our Lord revealed himself to Simon Peter, most likely late morning. In the afternoon, he spent hours with Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus and at the village itself. There remains one more appearance that day, the fifth one, in the evening back at Jerusalem. We'll come back to this. But first, I want to move ahead. I'll review what happened after that evening until the day of Christ's ascension. From that eventful Sunday, we count down 40 days, that adds a symmetrical sandwich structure to Jesus' earthly ministry, 40 days of temptation in the wilderness before the baptism of John, another 40-day period after a more important baptism, the baptism of Christ's death, around the baptism of John, sorry, burial and resurrection. So the length of time between the resurrection and the ascension is clear. In those days, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by his followers and speaking of the things pertaining to God's kingdom. Now, it's more difficult to account for the total number of Christ's appearances. We already said there's five reported on Easter. Beyond that day, but before the ascension, I say there's five more at minimum, probably more if the last words of John 20 and 21 give any indication. But we'll stick with five for now. So I say five times on the day of resurrection, five until his ascension. So first we go on to eight days after the resurrection Sunday, that's a Monday, John tells us that like last time they had their doors shut, the disciples, and presumably at the same location in Jerusalem, 
But unlike last time, Thomas is with them. Again, Jesus appears before them unimpeded and greets them. He locates Thomas and challenges him to touch his wounded hands and side. That's when doubting Thomas became the worshiping Thomas. Finally, the apostles are united in faith as eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. Next, the eleven leave Jerusalem and depart for Galilee as the Lord instructed. We have to consider two Galilean scenes, first at the sea and the other at a mountain. In John 21, we find seven disciples fishing at the lake of Gennesaret, and they caught nothing overnight, but many more in one instant as they obeyed Jesus. Breakfast followed, and Peter was reinstated. Still in Galilee region, at one of the mountains Jesus chose, his followers again saw him and worshipped him. My guess is that there are many more disciples there. I tend to equate this event with 1 Corinthians 15.6, when the risen Christ was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Paul goes on to tell us in 1 Corinthians 15.7 that Jesus also appeared to James, his half-brother. Like Mary Magdalene and Peter before him, he was treated to a one-on-one. Perhaps the Lord needed to give him some extra attention to prepare him for his future leadership role. Finally, we have the last few moments of Jesus before his ascension, as told in Mark, Acts, and in the final verses of Luke's gospel. So again, that's five times on the day of resurrection, five until his ascension. We'll look at two of these appearances in today's text, and so let me set up the scene for the Sunday evening event. So in a parallel passage, John narrates how the disciples had shut their doors where they gather for fear of the Jews. They wanted privacy to discuss all that happened earlier that day. By this point, the woman had brought their report of the empty tomb, the announcement of the angels, and their direct encounters with Jesus. When Cleopas and his friend arrived, the room was already abuzz because of Peter's testimony. The evidence was stacking up towards this Conclusion, the Lord is risen indeed. While still discussing, Thomas, one of the eleven, had enough of this and left. So now we can read the passage for today, Luke 24, 36 to 53. If you're following along in your pew Bible, you can find it in page 742. Luke 24, 36 to 53. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it 
and ate it, ate in their presence. Then he said to them, there are the, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So as we look at this passage, I observed three parts to it with three different emphases. In verses 36 to 43, Jesus is set on proving to his disciples that it's really him, not some ghost. He wants to move them from doubting to believing. Note how he appeals to human senses and the common sense. He commands them to behold and see with their eyes. He offers them his hands and feet to be touched. He appeals to their logic. Can spirits have flesh and bones and eat food? Of course not. Next in verses 44 to 49, Jesus wants to move his followers from comprehension of the scriptures to proclamation of the scriptures. Note the emphasis on God's word. Things which were written in three sections of the Old Testament in verse 44. The word scriptures in verse 45. And again, thus it is written in verse 46. But then there's the progression in verse 47. They must speak of what was spoken by God. Jerusalem's only a starting point, as the word of the Lord runs swiftly and is glorified. And this global task of going to all the nations is not too big as long as the Spirit of God empowers them for it. In verses 50 to 53, Luke fast-forwards to the end of the 40-day period, just before Jesus ascends to heaven, the son's going back to the father to his right hand to begin his priestly ministry of intercession. And what Jesus does in verses, verse 50 gives us a preview of that role as he raises his hands to bless God's people. There's certainly emphasis on blessing as that verbs found in three or four verses. God blesses us so that we may bless God. So with all that in mind, I want to speak of three radical transformations that take place because of Christ's resurrection. First, we're changed from doubters to believers of the risen Lord. We're changed from doubters to believers of the risen Lord. That's verses 36 to 43. Secondly, we move from learners to proclaimers of the fulfilled word. We move from learners to proclaimers of the fulfilled word. 
That's verses 44 to 49. Thirdly, we progress from blessed to joyful worshipers. Blessed to joyful worshipers. That's verses 50 to 53. First, we're changed from doubters to believers of the risen Lord. So Sunday evening, much has occurred in the last 12 hours or so, but what happens now is the most remarkable. We find the disciples terrified and frightened at the sudden appearance of Jesus. He calms them down, peace to you, he says. Keep in mind that Christ looked quite normal here. He didn't appear as he did on the Mount of Transfiguration, his face shining like snow or the sun, his clothes as exceedingly white as light and glistening. Now, don't get me wrong, this was still an amazing experience. In, in some ways, this event resembles that time Jesus walked on the sea and the disciples thought they saw a ghost. This time, he basically walks through the walls and they think they see a ghost. Consider how just a few days ago, he was brutally killed on the cross. Some of them were right there at the scene. The woman saw the body laid in the tomb. How is this possible? But before they could ask any questions, Jesus asked them first, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? These are rhetorical questions. They're not designed to get an answer, but to point to their unbelief and hardness of hearts. They still don't get it, and they remain doubters for the moment. Yet the Lord is gentle, able to sympathize with our weaknesses. If they can't believe their ears or their eyes while in the same room, he'll invite them to get close to him and look carefully at his scarred hands and feet. Those are unmistakable. They're the deadly wounds received at Calvary. And if they can't believe their ears and they can't believe their eyes, they can believe their touch. He offers them his hands and feet. It says in John 20, 20 that he also showed them his side. Handle me and see, he says. He's not a projection on a screen or a hologram in a lab. They can feel the skin, the muscles, and the bones beneath. But even then, in verse 41, it says, they still did not believe for joy and marvel, saying it was too good to be true. If I was Jesus, I'm thinking, okay, I gave them enough evidence. I'm not going to waste any more time trying to convince them I'm alive. It's as clear as sky is blue, as plain as the nose on your face. What more can I do to convince you? Well, thankfully, I'm not Jesus. He is patient. He not only approaches them, calms them, talks with them, and draws them into his personal space. He sits with them at the table. He spends time with them. He eats broiled fish and some honeycomb. It's nothing fancy, but common food. As they sat around him, they recognized his mannerisms idiosyncrasies, all the unique traits that made Jesus, Jesus they knew for years. 
So that's how our risen Lord transformed these doubters into believers. We too can stop doubting and start believing. Now you may say to me, but I wasn't there that day or any of those days Jesus appeared to his disciples. How can I be like them? Now hear these words of Jesus when he spoke to Thomas on one of the 11 apostles later. This is from John 20, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There it is. Special blessing reserved for those who have not seen Jesus with their own eyes, yet they do believe. You don't have to live in first century to change from being a doubter to a believer. So then, how exactly does that transformation happen? Well, the answer is the Holy Scriptures. The Bible is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That leads to the next point. The resurrection of Jesus transforms us from learners to proclaimers of the fulfilled word. What we see in verses 44 to 46 is similar to what happened to Cleopas and his companion. Jesus revealed the scriptures and then revealed himself. But now in Jerusalem, the order is flipped. This time Jesus revealed himself before he revealed the scriptures. Either way, as one pastor says, their experience of the resurrected Christ is both existential and exegetical. When the Lord enabled the minds or opened the minds and the understanding of the scriptures, we're not talking just a few random verses, not just some stories here and there. We're, take, we're talking from all three major portions of the Old Testament. That includes the first five books, the Law of Moses, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Next, there's the prophets. Most of what we know today as major and minor prophets, except Lamentation and Daniel, are called latter prophets. Before them are Joshua, Judges, the books of Samuel, and the books of Kings, labeled former prophets. The third and final section is called the Writings, They include Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes. Also included are Ruth, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the books of Chronicles. Jesus only mentioned the Psalms here, but that book is understood as the representative of all the rest in this section. And together, these three parts and all the books within them were considered canonical, the complete revelation of God until the New Testament was added soon after. And going through the Old Testament, you find the main storyline leading to Christ. To fail to recognize this would be disastrous. It would be missing the point, losing the plot. Jesus won't have that with his disciples. Much of that evening was spent in that effort to make that crucial connection between the scriptures and Christ We can imagine at least some of the passages, uh, just to name a few. Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 21, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 13, Psalms 2, 16, 22, 110. We see a lot of these played out in the rest of the New Testament. We must understand 
how these passages point to Jesus. The grammar of these verses supports this theological truth. You see there that phrase, it was necessary, in verse 46. It's one word in the original language, and it's also found in verse 44, just in a different tense. Attached to both are complementary infinitives. Be fulfilled in verse 44, and to suffer and to rise in verse 46. That allows us to make that conceptual link between the fulfillment of the scriptures and the events of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. But there's also another complementary infinitive in verse 47, which should be linked to that phrase, it was necessary. It's be preached. Do not miss this. So just as it was a biblical imperative, absolutely necessary for Christ to die and be raised from the dead, it's also a biblical imperative, absolutely necessary, that that repentance and remission of sins be preached in Christ's name to all nations. That means the end of sin's reign and power must be proclaimed with the authority of Jesus backing it. That means what happened at Jerusalem doesn't stay at Jerusalem. Now that begs the question, who is going to go to the nations? Jesus could have asked them the question of Isaiah 6 Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Well, there's no question here. No call for volunteers. This is a divine subpoena from Christ who sits as judge. Our witness stand is the world. Our testimony is the gospel. Simple yet, it's no easy task to be witnesses for Jesus. Disciples need power from on high. And they're about to get it, an abundance of it. The promise of God the Father, predicted by God the Son, is none other than God the Holy Spirit. This promise goes back to the prophets of old. Isaiah 44, 2-3, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Joel 2, 28-29, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, and also on my manservants and my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And Jesus taught more on this promise. He told his disciples that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in his name, will teach them all things and bring to remembrance all things that he said to them and testifies of him. He is the Spirit of truth who abides with us forever, dwells in us, dwells with us, and is in us. Talked about in John 14 and 15 and 16. Disciples will not have to wait too long for this promise of the Holy Spirit After Christ's ascension to heaven, it would only be a week and a half later at Pentecost. Then they'll be immersed in the Spirit, just as many of them were immersed in water by John the Baptist. So now on this side of Pentecost, we the church have all that we need. We read and know the contents of the scriptures, illuminated by the Spirit, So we can meet the demands of scriptures 
empowered by the Spirit. We are transformed and equipped to move from being learners to proclaimers of the fulfilled word. Now, we do need wisdom and a good strategy to take the good news to all nations. Now, it starts right here on a typical Sunday gathering. Now, to be clear, our main goal here is for the edification of the saints. But Paul seems to imply in some places, like 1 Corinthians 14, that an unbeliever or an uninformed person might join a weekly gathering of Christians. We should, we should be sensitive to such individuals. But at some point during our meetings, our unregenerate guests should hear the gospel presented. That's why I try to point to Christ, his death and resurrection during the sermon time, and which I'll do right now. And so for that, I return to the text. The need for Christ to fulfill the scriptures, supper and rise from the dead on the third day, goes back to our desperate need, the need to be saved from hell. We are sinners. We broke God's laws, taking his name in vain, murdering with hate, lusting, lying, coveting, we rejected the prophets who predict judgment for those who reject God. We fail to worship God as the Psalms demand. As the consequences of our simple choices, we deserve his judgment, eternal separation from God. Without God's Son coming to earth as one of us, there's nothing but God's wrath before us. But Jesus lived a perfect life, suffered before and at the cross in our place to pay the penalty of sins we should pay. He died as our substitute, as our Passover lamb, so that divine judgment might pass over us. On the third day, he rose again from the grave, proved he was alive, and demonstrated how his work is complete. Now, God invites you to benefit from that work. Repent and believe. Turn away from self-righteousness and self-gratification. Turn to Jesus by trusting in him and his finished work of salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn or deserve heaven. God justifies us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Make the decision as soon as possible, before it's too late. As the resurrection of Jesus transforms us from doubters to believers, from learners to proclaimers, there's another change we note in the passage. The disciples of Christ move from blessed to joyful worshipers. Looking at the final verses as a whole, we not only leave behind the confines of the city Jerusalem to go to nearby Bethany where the Mount of Olives was located, we've also skipped ahead to the 40th day to the day of Christ's ascension. Mark does something similar at the close of his gospel. But there are some unique features of Luke's ending. I already mentioned the repetition of the word bless three times in four verses. But going deeper, you look at the way Jesus lifted up his hands 
before blessing his people. That should remind us of the way priests act as representatives of Israel. Here's a verse from Leviticus 9.22. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. Like Aaron before him, Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed his people. Unlike Aaron and his fallible successors, whose work was never done, Jesus offered up himself as sacrifice once for all. By his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. Through the offering of his body once for all, we are sanctified. Through the offering of his body once for all, we are sanctified. And all that remains for him at this point, after purging our sins, is to ascend, sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is why we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is the greatest benediction by the greatest priest. Even if we ourselves form the priesthood of believers, there's nothing compared to the blessing of Christ, our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That was the last sight and sound of Jesus until he returns in like manner as they saw him go into heaven. But the Lord didn't want them just standing there, craning their necks. As they wait for the Holy Spirit, they are to take the priestly blessings they receive and become joyful worshipers. They return to the city with great joy. They're praising God in the temple. Blessed by God's Son, they bless God's name. Quite a transformation. The disciples are filled with so much joy that they worship publicly without fear of Jews. They expose themselves to enemies who notice them and will soon persecute them. But what is there to fear anymore? when Jesus is their advocate. Christ who died on furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God also makes intercession for them. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Jesus rose from the dead, and he ascended. That is reason for joyful worship. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless, righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for how what happened 2,000 years ago has changed the universe, changed reality, because your son rose from the grave. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven. 
And Lord, we proclaim this truth as long as you have us, as long as the fullness of Gentile comes in, is coming in, and help us to be faithful with the Great Commission. Lord, may we reflect not just once a year, but every week, how the resurrection changes us, how we should be no longer doubt, but proclaim and worship you, deserving of our worship, because you have blessed us so that we may tell others about the truth of the gospel. And we ask that as we sing and as we go out this week, we'll do just that. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.